0: Right, well, uh, thank you to Jamie for inviting me to uh, talk to you today. I've got B, which is for bronchospasm. Um, generally, I'm going to confine it to asthma, which is what I'm uh, mainly interested in. Um, an overview of that, that, lessons from asthma deaths, because this is. I'll try and convince you this is a, an ongoing problem. Uh, an approach to acute severe asthma, now, I know a lot of you already know about how to approach um, acute severe asthma, but... I think it's worth going over it again because consistently guidelines show that we're, we're not meeting the recognized standards um, in audits. And then discharge planning, and is there a way that we can close the revolving door on asthma admissions? <coughs> so obviously the pathophysiology of, of asthma is bronchospasm, so it's tell you about bronchospasm, spasm of the uh, uh, bronchoproved muscles, swelling, edema, and thick secretions. This is um, a slide showing asthma mortality. Uh, well, we could, this is from 1993 to 2006. And i draw your eye to the, the triangles Are the 5 to 34-year-olds, and the boxes is all ages. We can be more confident about um, the death certificate in the 5 to 34-year-olds, so this is, these are true asthma deaths. And what we can see is that it's pretty flat all the way along. It's about 1,200 deaths per year, uh, and going on from 2006 onwards, it's the same. We've not made any major impact into asthma deaths over the last decade. The lessons from uh, studies of asthma deaths, there's been a number of confidential inquiries uh, around the region and the themes are all identical and most recently there's been a national review of asthma deaths by the Royal College of Physicians uh, which is really gonna tell us exactly how many asthma deaths there really are Um, and this was done from February 2012 to February 2013 and all asthma deaths were analysed. Um, all the notes were a set, looked at. The big panel of about 15 uh, people, ranging from GPs to specialists, to uh, respiratory nurses, went through it and looked at whether it was truly an asthma death and all the uh, all the factors that uh, led to that death. And that's going to be out <coughs> in April. So that can be a really important document. But the consistent themes are disease factors medical management and adverse psychosocial and behavioural factors. So disease factors, well myth number one is that asthma deaths only occur in severe asthmatics, that's not true. Um, About half the asthmatics were in the severe category. Um, About half uh, are cared for in primary care with mild to moderate asthma. So it occurs across a range of disease severities. Uh, Medical management. As I said before, um, the guidelines for asthma are very, very good from the British Thoracic Society, but consistently audits show that around the country um, often we don't meet those uh, guidelines. Inadequate treatment with inhaled corticosteroids, um, so patients before they come into hospital not using inhaled corticosteroids appropriately, and oral corticosteroids. Heavy beta-2 agonist use, um, so particularly when you're assessing the patient, it's good to know what their background control was like. If you've got a patient who's re- using more than two salbutamol inhalers a month, that's associated with a significant increased risk of mortality. And if you've got someone in the previous 24 hours who's been using a lot of beta 2 agonists, they're unlikely to be patients that are going to respond quickly to uh, interventions and are not going to be going home quickly. Inadequate objective monitoring with peak flows, for instance, on the wards, it's still a problem trying to get peak flows done on the ward. Inadequate follow-up, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later on. Under use of written asthma management plans, um, this is something respiratory physicians always bang on about. Probably about 4% of um, asthmatics have an asthma management plan. A lot of them are offered them uh, and probably put them in a drawer. But it is uh, associated with significant improvements in uh, admissions, about 40% reduction. There's an ongoing association with beta blockers and non-steroidals consistently in the confidential inquiries. Asthmatics being put on beta blockers, Uh, remember topical beta blockers can still be a problem, uh, and non-steroidals. And failure to refer early, now that's um, in the community, failure to refer to respiratory physicians, but also failure to refer to intensivists when you've got patients in the emergency department. And then the adverse psychosocial and behavioural factors, and these are a lot more difficult. Uh, Non-compliance is an ongoing problem, and that's not just the same in asthma, but in, in many chronic diseases probably about 50% of asthmatics take their inhalers uh, as often as we think, they, or as often as they should do. And even patients with severe asthma who are on oral corticosteroids, when we check prednisolone and cortisol levels, um, about 50% are compliant with oral corticosteroids. So it's a big issue. But then you've got the patients who DNA appointments, um, who self-discharge from hospital, uh, psychosocial problems. And these are the patients who are not engaging with what we're trying to do. They're not the patients who are going to come back to follow-up very easily, yet they are the most vulnerable and most risk of death. So, acute severe asthma There's a few red flags, um, which I'm sure you already know, but previous near-fatal asthma, and that's um, even if they've been ventilated or just hypercapnic respiratory failure. Any previous admission for, for asthma, particularly in the last year, repeated ED attendances... These are all associated with increased risk of mortality, um, requiring three or more classes of asthma drugs. So that's inhaled steroids, long-acting beta-2 agonists, plus a leukotriene receptor antagonist or a theophylline. Uh, so anyone at step four of BTS guidelines, essentially. And anyone using uh, heavy beta-agonist use. Again, if you've got someone who's using a lot of salbutamol in the preceding 24 hours, this is not a patient who's going to respond quickly to your treatment. They're not going to be going home. So. Just to go over acute asthma, I mean the main thing on this side to recognise is the features of life-threatening asthma. So are they too breathless to talk at all, using accessory muscles? Um, silent chest, obviously, because they're not shifting any air, and peak flow of less than 33%, but of course this, these patients won't be doing a peak flow, they're too breathless. Um, so these patients, really important to get treatment in early and for the juniors to get help. Severe Inability to complete sentences in one breath, peak flow between third and a half, tachycardic, and if you've got a patient with a a peak flow still of less than 50% of predicted or best after initial treatment, then that's a predictive of uh, a more prolonged attack. Again, these patients are going to be admitted. So in terms of investigations, it's pretty straightforward. The majority of asthmatics um, don't need a chest X-ray. So it's not re- routinely needed. It's just for patients who are not responding to initial treatment, got the severe or life-threatening, obviously they will get a chest x-ray. And any patients clinically where you suspecting pneumothorax or pneumonia. Blood tests, obviously as you all know, checking the potassium is important. It will go down with repeated um, uh, beta-2 agonists, may need replacements. And blood gases can generally just be reserved for patients who are hypoxic. So if they've got Oxygen sat less than 92% on um, oxygen or air, then do a blood gas or anyone with severe asthma not responding to initial treatment. And of course, with respect <coughs> to the blood gases, it's really important to focus on the PCO2. If the PCO2 is normal, this is a warning sign. Usually, these patients are hyperventilating; they'll be they'll have low CO2s. So when it starts getting into the normal range, really re- assess the patient. Are they getting tired? Is this preceding hypercapnic respiratory failure, should you be calling intensive care. So just to get on to the management, which actually is really straightforward. Um, Well, I hope I'm going to show you it's really straightforward. Number one, oxygen. Repeated inhaled bronchodilators and systemic steroids. This is what they're all going to need. So in terms of oxygen, um, oxygen, aim for oxygen sats, 94 to 98%. So they don't need 100% oxygen sats, and there is some evidence that too much oxygen can be a bad thing. So the nebulizers should be oxygen-driven. And to start with, for acute severe asthma, I would give 5 mg salbutamol. And then it's better to give, well, the evidence shows that it's better to give increased frequency of salbutamol nebs um, rather than higher dose. So a study comparing 2.5 milligrams of salbutamol every 20 minutes was as good as 7.5 milligrams of salbutamol every 20 minutes. So it's better in that situation, start off with your higher dose and then give increasingly frequent salbutamol nebs at 2.5 milligrams. If you're not responding after that, uh, and if you have the facilities in your ED department, then giving a continuous uh, beta-2 agonist nebulized, 10 milligrams in 70 mils, uh, is, is better. Okay. And an important take-home point is that uh, MDI and spacer are at least as equivalent to nebulizers. So about 6 to 10 puffs of an MDI, subutymol, and spacer will be the same as a 2.5 milligram nebulizer. So if you haven't got nebs available, get the patients to, to do that. And of course, if you haven't got a spacer, you can try and make a spacer out of various things hanging about. Next, ipotropium bromide. Uh, so generally, this is just for patients with acute severe asthma. So studies do show that you get increased bronchodilation, improved lung function, and reduced uh, admissions. Go for the initial 500 micrograms. So acute of asthma will be salbutamol 5 milligrams, atrovent 500 micrograms. But then consider repeating that after 60 minutes if there's not much improvement. Then you go back to your standard dosing of 500 micrograms QDS. Usually patients will only need atrovent for about 12 to 24 hours. Most asthmatics don't need Atrivent, it's really just for the severe category. And this is the first-line treatment for uh, beta-blocker-induced bronchospasm. Now, steroids are the really important thing, and sometimes there can be a hesitancy uh, in giving steroids, but always give steroids in adequate doses to all cases of acute asthma. And I I guess one of the take-home points is adequate doses. So the BTS advised 40 to 50 milligrams of prednisolone a day, There is no set time point uh, to prescribe steroids for. At least five days, but it's until recovery, which is why it's so important these patients are followed up and assessed to make sure that they've improved. Um, So it might be 10 days, it might be 14 days. That's why it's really important. Someone's got to review them. Uh, It's uh, as good to give oral prednisolone if they can take it. It's probably going to work within about six hours. IV hydrocortisone if they can't take it orally. Uh, and that works in about four hours. 100 milligrams of QDS. If you're really struggling with IV access and they can't take things orally, then a shot of is methylprednisolone. <clears throat> uh, one of the other key points is it's really important when patients get admitted to continue prescribing their inhaled corticosteroids. This is uh, increasingly I see this is it's not done, but it's really important to um, improve compliance. So essentially, acute severe asthma, oxygen nebs, steroids, and then plus or minus magnesium. So magnesium's been um, been talked about quite a lot over recent years. Uh, it's interesting. There's a number of reasons why it's felt to be uh, it may be helpful. It's a bronchodilator, a direct smooth muscle relaxant uh, when given nebulized. It's uh, nature's physiological calcium antagonist essentially. So it blocks calcium influx into smooth muscles, and can reduce neutrophilic bursts. So there's a number of reasons why why it might be helpful. Um, And there's been, um, Cochrane have done a meta-analysis about this, and for IV salbutamol, this is recommended in life-threatening asthma or patients who have not had a good initial response to inhaled bronchodilators. So acute, severe, and life-threatening. And it's just 1.2 to 2 grams in 100 mL of normal saline over 20 minutes that's safe, it's actually much lower doses than the uh, obstetricians use and there's been no evidence looking at repeated doses so it's really just a one-off dose. I put query nebulized magnesium Um, we were involved in a study 10 years ago looking at nebulized magnesium in addition to nebulized salbutamol which which was beneficial but um, the jury's still out, the the recent 3MG study um, comparing nebulized and IV didn't show any any benefit with that, so not at the moment. This is just to show you, this is from the the Cochrane review of um, IV magnesium. This is uh, acute uh, asthma admissions, and what you can see is just the severe category that get the benefit. So the top five studies uh, show to the left favours magnesium in reducing asthma admissions. You can see that there is significant benefit but only confined to that severe group. So mild to moderate asthmatics don't need IV magnesium. Now we come on to IV aminophylline, which I think essentially treating acute severe asthma is relatively straightforward. There isn't any evidence for IV aminophylline. When looking at the studies, essentially it's unlikely to improve efficacy above standard care. Uh, but it does increase the risk of side effects, in particular arrhythmias, and these are already patients who are tachycardic anyway, uh, and vomiting. And there didn't appear to be any subgroups in which it was beneficial. So the advice would be to to only use this after consultation with seniors and specialists. If you've got a patient who is getting worse, um, heading towards ITU, then I would use it on an individual patient basis. Um, Routinely, no, because of the side effects. All your trusts will have a protocol of um, how to use it. Um, Important to say that no loading dose if they're already on oral theophyllins. And really important to check levels daily and just to be aware of interactions, particularly with some antibiotics, quinolones and macrolides particularly, which will increase uh, theophyllin levels. So generally, not for for most people, Um, if you're getting towards that life-threatening, towards ITU, then you should be involving uh, specialists anyway. IV salbutamol, even even less so. There's no benefits with uh, over-repeated nebulized beta-2 agonists. So there's been a a few studies looking at IV plus nebulized versus nebulized alone, even in patients with hypercapnic respiratory failure, and it hasn't shown any significant benefit with IV salbutamol over standard care and just has the risk of, um, well, the the side effects. So, again, this is only for use with consultation with seniors and specialists, and really, again, its use is just going to be restricted to refractory life-threatening asthma, which these patients are much more likely going to be in the HDU, ITU uh, settings. So I think that's made, well, for me, when I was a, a house officer, we used loads of aminophilin. Um, It's made it much easier now, is that generally it's oxygen nebs and steroids plus or minus magnesium. But now, when the patients have been uh, admitted, the important thing is the timing of discharge. So we need to see a progressive improvement in peak flow uh, before discharge. And generally we say not requiring any nebulizers for 24 hours prior to discharge. That's important to make sure that they aren't getting worse um, overnight. Usually we'll see them in the morning, But of course, it's overnight that they're likely to get worse. And there's an increased risk of early relapse if they're discharged with a peak flow of less than 75%, or if you've got diurnal variability over 20%. So you've done the hard bit in treating the patient. But if I said to you that 75% of asthma admissions are avoidable, really, we shouldn't be seeing a lot of these people. And it's the discharge planning that is the most important bit. So if we don't want the patients coming back, we need to plan well. So things like an ED discharge letter, um, going back to the GPs the same day. The the BTS advised that these patients should be seen within two working days uh, of being seen in hospital. Now, I don't think that ever happens. Certainly, uh, on all the patients we've seen, it never happens. Uh, A letter to the patients would be useful as well, which is something we're going to look at here. But it's important to take away that every admission to hospital is an opportunity to change behavior, improve compliance, education, patient engagement. And I put on this about asthma action plans again. Um, so many patients don't have any written asthma management plans, but they are a fantastic way of reducing hospital admissions. And just to show you this, uh, as I said, 75% of asthma admissions are avoidable. The top line is all emergency asthma admissions uh, over, the part, over a decade, 2002 to 2011, and the bottom line is just England. And what we can see that it, it runs around the 60,000 uh, 60, patients a year mark, and it's not really changed at all. So just like mortality, asthma admissions haven't really changed over a decade. So it comes to the question of can we close the revolving door on these asthma admissions. So what we did, because we felt that these patients weren't being seen in primary care for a number of reasons, uh, not least communication from us to primary care. So we set up uh, an asthma team which started in uh, September 2011 and what we did is we expanded our COPD in-reach team to cover asthma patients. So as well as the COPD patients on the wards, they would see the asthma patients as well. And then in o- October 2012, we expanded it further to actively trace all patients who've come to ED or the QGP service. Um, and been discharged before we could see them. So the aim was that we would see all patients admitted to hospital with asthma or adults admitted to hospital with asthma and follow them up in a nurse led asthma clinic. The goal was that we try and see them within a week uh, that's proved difficult, we'd probably see them within about a month um, and we use a SIMPLES approach which I'll, I'll go on in a second and tell you what the SIMPLES approach is. One of the really useful parts is that I found is that we have a weekly asthma MDT so The patients are seen in an asthma nurse specialist clinic, and then every week we review those patients, um, decide about what the appropriate management is, whether we should see them again or discharge them back to the primary care, or whether we should refer them into uh, the difficult asthma clinic itself. And a significant number of patients have evidence of poor compliance. About 50% have evidence of um, poor inhaler technique, which was corrected, poor compliance, Hardly any of them had written asthma management plans. um, And interestingly, none of them said they'd been seen by their GPs in primary care by the time we'd seen them. Uh, So the SIMPLES approach is is exactly that. This is what uh, GPs should be doing or practice nurses should be doing uh, in primary care. Smoking, so refer them to smoking cessation. Inhaler technique, which we know is always very poor, but it's really important to address that and make sure that we've tailored the right inhaler to the right patient. We know that compliance is poor. Monitoring, and that's with the asthma control test or rural college um, three questions. Pharmacotherapy, so checking for non-adherence, and patient understanding is a big part of that. Lifestyle, it's really important to look at occupational and environmental factors. About 9 to 15% of adult asthma is related to occupation. Uh, Education, and then support. And that's probably a big thing that we do within the the Plymouth Asthma Service, is that we will see these patients again if they're frequent attenders or if they're at risk of coming back in um, or if we don't think they're going to get that support in primary care, then we will see them again until we're satisfied. And this is just to show you, I mean, this is so far, but I think there has been some benefit. So this is hospital admissions 2011 to 2013. we can see that there's been a stepwise reduction in hospital admissions uh, with this service. And this is ED attendances. So the ED tracing started in October 2012. um, And there's been a significant reduction and a significant reduction in readmissions. Um, Obviously, it's not fully resourced. There are patients that we still miss. But I think there has been some benefit there. So the key points to take really are... I hope you understand the factors around asthma deaths and admissions, why so many are avoidable. Recognise acute severe asthma and treat appropriately. Um, I think it's relatively straightforward. Oxygen, NEBs, steroids, plus or minus magnesium. And then every time we see a patient in hospital, is an opportunity to address those problems with inhaler technique, compliance, management plans. So discharge planning is is really the key. And I think we can close the door on revolving... uh, asthma admissions, although it's going to require innovative solutions and local solutions. And I encourage you to go back to your own trust and see what setup you've got there uh, in terms of supporting these patients. And thank you for your attention.